Hello again, and welcome to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. In part one of today's episode, we're speaking with Monty Bohannon, Director of Communications at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, about his experiences working at a nonprofit arts organization and the troubles and triumphs over the past year. Then in part two, we'll talk with Dan Freund about the short digital animation piece he made in response to our conversation with Monty. We'll provide our usual audio description of the piece, but you can also view it on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. Everything teased here and more coming up. I'm your host, Robin Fowler. Uncertainty has been a major part of everyone's lives over the past year. As the fog of 2020 begins to lift and our footing becomes more sure, we're taking a look back at how the most uncertain of times were handled. What was it like for New Hampshire small business owners, artists, working professionals? We hope this shows an opportunity to reflect on the obstacles of the past, but also an opportunity to recognize the ways we overcame and prepared for those uncertainties. As always, part one is a conversation with someone about their journey with uncertainty in the past year, professionally as well as personally. And part two is where we give that conversation to an artist and ask them to creatively respond in their chosen medium. We've had music, dance, visual art, and today we have a digital animation. Our first guest today is Monty Bohannon. Monty is the Director of Communications and Community Engagement at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He's a mentor of young professionals who are seeking to find a career in the arts or marketing, and he's one of the ghouls behind the Portsmouth Halloween Parade, a community-organized event that attracts thousands of marchers and 10 to 20,000 spectators. Welcome, Monty. Welcome, Monty, to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Thanks for having me here. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. I'm good. It's always the it's always the, the I'm I'm relatively good. It's you know, we're yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> uh so um wow, where do we even go from here? What's uh let's let's just yeah. dive in with the New Hampshire thoughts. Uh what what's your connection yeah. to the state of New Hampshire? Um well I grew up just outside of Concord in a little town called Kentucook, which uh in the Native American language of, of the Penacook means place where the crows meat. So, um, yeah, I grew up on a, on a dairy farm there and it, it lives up to that name. No, it's, it was a great place to grow up. But, you know, I, I, um, for a lot of, a lot of my childhood, I couldn't wait to get out of there, but looking back on it now, I can't imagine a better place for me to have grown up. Mainly, I think, because I had like 450 acres of, of field and woods to run around on, wow. and my parents were really appreciative for that. Because oh, um, I was a, a high-energy kid that uh, I heard a lot uh, of, just get, go outside, just get outside. <laughs> <laughs> I heard a lot of that growing up. So um, that was really good. And we had like had just a, a great group of friends growing up. And I, I really couldn't ask for better. And I went, uh, you know, like four generations before me, I went to UNH. Um, <laughs> you know, so There's a lot of that on I didn't, this podcast so far. <laughs> right, <laughs> I didn't go far. Um, and then shortly after, after uh, leaving UNH, I landed at the Music Hall. 
Good place to land. Good place to yeah. land. Yeah. I'm picture, I just, you know, it's it's a, a snowy day in early February. I'm looking out my office window at the snow coming down. And I'm just, I, I'm, ta- I'm transported back in time, picturing a young Monty running out into the woods on a snowy day. It's a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful image that you've, you've transported me back. To, 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 <laughs> oh, well, that's great. <laughs> on yeah. a snowy day yeah. in New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, can you tell day. us a little bit about the musical? Sure. So um, it's it's a it's a, a nonprofit performing arts center made up of two venues. Um, I'm standing in one of them right now, mm-hmm. uh, the Loft, which is a a small little black box theater, about a hundred seats, and then we also run a uh, 900 seat historic venue, one of the oldest continuously operating theaters in the United States, um, and one of the last that still uses. We're still a hemp house, so we use counterweight and and rigging. We're rigged like a, a tall ship, if you've ever seen yeah. one of those. So we're one of the last theaters uh, in the country to be rigged like that. And um, we do a little bit of everything at the music hall. We do uh, music, obviously, um, <laughs> theater, some film, um, comedy, uh, and a whole bunch of literary events. So we 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 keep it keep a lot going on. Um, even yeah. still, we're doing doing a lot. So what are some ways that it's been affected by the uncertainty, the, the uncertainty of the social and public health challenges of the past year? Just about a year ago, uh, March 17th, was our last full audience live show. And we shut down for March, April, May, and June. And we had uh, completely shut down and we laid off about 40% of our staff and we weren't able to do any shows. We, we tried some, we, we did some live streaming with some author events cause those, those were pretty easy, but uh, any live streaming of music for us was out at that point. Um, we like a lot of the restaurants, we sort of petitioned the city to be able to do some stuff outside and that we started up in July um, in that span, we kind of, we, we had already begun a major infrastructure project that we, we finished, which was a little bit of a silver lining for us. It was mm. the HVAC system that was, Perfect uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so it was, it was old 20 years ago. Oh, um, and again, silver lining there, but you know, not, not the, not the way we wanted to do it, but it stopped that we would have had to shut down for, uh, 60 or 90 days sometime this summer anyway. Um, but really it, it still, we were sort of, you know, performing arts centers were the first to shut down and we'll be among the last to get back to fully operational. But the you know, state of New Hampshire, uh, through the CARES Act, was really good about distributing um, monies to nonprofits and to, to performing arts venues in a way that a lot of our sister states uh, in New England didn't. Um, so mm. we were lucky there. Um, we w- were able to get some PPP funding. And what that's translated into is to keep, you know, keep that 60% of our full-time staff employed mm. so that we can think of new ways of programming, think of new ideas and, and implement them, but also be thinking about, okay, what's the plan once we get back to a uh, to fully operating, how do we emerge out of this, and how do we rebuild audiences and and audience confidence um, in coming back to the theater? Because that's that's going to be another twelve months, yeah, <laughs> at least. Yeah, yeah. So, in, what was the what was the mood or the vibe in those early months when 
the uncertainty was high. Did you feel poised to navigate things or was it a <laughs> Jesus take the wheel moment? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, I think we were, you know, there, there was definitely in those early days, there was this sense that, okay, we're going to hunker down and, and we're going to see the other side of this and we'll be back to operation in, in the fall. Yeah. Right. Or, or we'll be back, you know, later this summer. And then as it became increasingly apparent that that wasn't the case, then I think there was this sort of, okay, now what moment of, all right, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure that the, the team that we have here and, and the organization itself is going to be protected as much as we can and that there was no I, I never I never got the sense from our from the leadership team that there was there was any feeling that you know the music hall is going to shutter like we are not going to close you know we are the, the main core of our staff was here and we're like nope we're we're going to we're going to get to the other side of this come hell or high water it's not like we have an endowment we're not attached to a municipality we're not attached to a university um, so we just had a little rainy day fund and our donors and sponsors and members that we hoped would hang with us, and, and largely they did, and, and has, that's helped us get to the point we're at now. And so I, I do think there was a few weeks of, all right, everybody, everybody hold on. We're, yeah. you know, we're going through the rapids. <laughs> Let's figure out, figure out how, we, how we exist. And, and we, were, we were really part of the group of folks who helped write the recommended rules for theaters um, with the state of New Hampshire mm. um, as part of that task force. Then we wanted to be at the table for, okay, we, we know what can make a theater um, viable uh, even mm. at reduced capacity. And you know, the state said you can have a 50% capacity. Our, our historic theater said, how about 20%? And then, <laughs> because we couldn't we couldn't safely socially distance yeah. with any more than that, and then audiences over the summer and into the fall showed up in about the ten to to fifteen percent range. Oh, so on the audience side, what was the sense that you got about the audiences um, feeling about coming back or uh, supporting the theater, or you know, just the general air of the audience? By July, people were willing to sit outside, socially distance mm -hmm. with their you know with their their bubble group and that was that worked for a while you know we did we did shows out on the street at tables and and that worked while the weather held um it certainly wasn't you know it was sort of like running our business on on idle you know running yeah. running at with 76 seats instead of 900 seats so it, it wasn't it's not long-term sustainable to continue sure. that way but but it was great for that audience engagement piece and for getting people comfortable sort of in that, in that way. And I think people were really comfortable sitting outside. And it, through the fall, it was kind of a, a mixed result of people willing to come inside into the theater. And I think that I think we've seen that persist through the winter as well. And certainly interesting to see people's buying behavior. And it's really about what's on stage. You know, people, people are really excited about uh, comedy, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and 
but not so much about movies as we've seen. They, you know, I think movies are something that's so easily uh, replicated at home yeah. these days that those, you know, our our movie business is is very small. Uh, are there some uh, like specific best practices for arts venues that? Uh, that you saw working really well for you or that uh, you saw the audience responding to in positive ways? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we saw that worked really well is, you know, having, obviously, encouraging people to buy uh, tickets and concessions ahead of time mm-hmm. um, and and really understanding sort of social distancing, even within the theater, the rules that that we established within the theater about about masking and about if we have people on stage or working backstage they can't cross into the audience space and you know having having a 10,000 square foot auditorium space that's a lot of air it's a lot of movement um, yeah. that that really helps and i think just getting you know, I could see it when people when people first came in. You know, it's it their their shoulders were up around their ears and they were very closed and they were like walking in and reaching out for the hand sanitizer. And then they get to their seats, they sit down, and they're still like looking around, really really nervous. But then the show starts, and it's just like I can just watch that tension mm. drop, and I can see people sort of be like, oh, this is okay. This is okay. And they get they get into that flow and they get into that, hey, there's a there's a there's a taste of normalcy here that I wanna I wanna chase after. I'm jealous that you get to see that so often. Um, so I'm sure a lot of these changes are going to be at least sticking around in the short term, certainly. Are there any uh, adjustments or changes that you've made to the way you run things that you think are going to stick around longer for forever? Absolutely. I think we're going to really see a lot more outdoor, outside programming from us, um, mm-hmm. changing the way that we use the space. Um, and certainly, I think the, the quantity of programming is, is going to change, at least in the, in the short term, just simply because we don't have the staff to do 600 events a year. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think the quality of that programming is going to be the same or better, given that that people, I think there's going to be a, a pent-up demand uh, for people to come out and see shows and, and be together and gather when it's safe to, safe to do so in, in the way that we were used to. I know you've done some uh, streaming events as well. What about what's the transition to streaming like, especially being a venue that is known so much for the beautiful venue? Like part of the experience is just getting to sit inside and look at the beautifully painted ceilings and the uh, incredible architecture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> How, you know, feel? Uh, it, it was it was hard, honestly. I, I think I think even being sort of like a, a, a digital guy and wanting mm-hmm. that, I found it really hard to, to want to ch- change that experience, you know, sure. because it is so much about that, that, you know, for, for the first 10 years of the existence of the nonprofit, the, it's the friends of the music hall, it was about save the building, save the building and save yeah. the building. And then it was restore the building, restore the building, restore the building. And then it became, you know, uh, uh, make us sustainable, you know, like those, so those are those, those big three messages. But the way that I'm, I, 
my, my thinking evolved around that is that one, we can, we can t- still deliver the quality and type of programming that we had been doing in person in this, it, it, during the pandemic. And then once we're sort of post pandemic or even right now, we're starting to do hybrid programming. So, you know, we're still at capped at about 200 seats, but then we can do a live show and a live stream and and reach an audience that we normally wouldn't. So in that way, I, I've sort of started to think about it like, well, you know, we can grow a non-geographically local audience based on the acts that we're able to bring in yeah. and, and perhaps put more focus on on that historic theater and hey look at look at the kind of place it is but it is terrifying in a way that that a live show for me is not cuz there's that layer of technology there that you know when we're when uh, I'll use an example we had Rebecca Carroll um, t- come to talk about her book and so she's in New York on her laptop we've got our interviewer Peter Biello at at New Hampshire Public Radio in Concord and we're here at the loft and if something goes technically wrong, there's nothing any of us yeah. can do. <laughs> Hundreds of like miles if, away from each other. Re- yeah. <laughs> yeah, if Rebecca Carroll's Wi-Fi goes out, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. And that, that like, you know, I always have good butterflies, but that gives me the, the bad butterfly feeling of like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, here we go. Pray everything works. Is the, is the streaming movement um, a bell that can't be unrung for performing venues now? There are going to be a lot of artists who are not going to want anything to do with it mm-hmm. because they've so, especially musicians, because they've so recently been burned by their loss of income sure. from from the switch to stream the other streaming, just audio streaming of yeah. of, of you know Spotify, Apple, Apple music, music and Spotify yeah. and all of those that that the only income left for live performers is that live tour sure that's they're they're not selling cds and you know maybe they've got uh you know they've cornered the market on some lp sales but they you know really the the only way that they can make a living is through that live concert and they're not going to want to seed that any anymore um so i think there's going to be a period of transition and a period of some will be excited to do it you know i I think of those up-and-coming artists they'll be excited Mm -hmm. to do it because for them just like for the venue it's a it's a chance to reach broader but some of those more established artists are not going to want to see their paycheck disappear like it did in streaming you know to to get to make a thousand dollars from spotify you need a million streams yeah of your song so that's (laughs) The, the economics there doesn't work for the artist. <laughs> yeah. Well, and some of those more established artists might be able to draw the crowd that a, uh, a younger artist or a newer artist might not be able to. So they would have to take advantage of being able to get to that wider streaming audience. Somebody who might just be like, oh, I'll pop in for a bit. I don't have to drive all the way over there and see it. <laughs> oh, this is great. I'll add it to my playlist. <laughs> right. But yeah, that that ability to... Like like you were saying, change the entire business model of how how we do our business because we we you know we lost ninety percent of our ticket sales yeah which is overall 
ticket sales account for 70% of our, our revenue and, and the, the sponsorship and membership and any other aid only counts for 30% of it. So to lose that much of your core business is terrifying. And of course we have to have to change, but what we will, what we will never lose is that we are first and foremost, a place, a room to gather in. And, and whether that means that we continue to use live streaming to expand our accessibility, people who can't get to the theater, people who can't afford that live theater ticket can still participate in some way. And, and maybe that's the, the case for continuing the live stream or to continue yeah. a hybrid um, is that, you know, some, some people just can't simply can't do the thing or they can't, they can't be forced into a, a sort of appointment theater. You know, totally. I, 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 I don't watch broadcast TV. I don't even listen to the radio in real time. You know, that, that appointment thing is podcasts is, and watch my DVR and on demand, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your personal uncertainties. <laughs> uh, what, what are you, what, what, what's in your personal life? What are you uncertain about right now? You know, for a long time, I was I was uncertain. You know whether whether I was I was going to go to a, a part time status. You know, like be yeah. furloughed for a while. And really, in my personal life, my uncertainties are are focused around you know my family and and my kids. I have I have two school age children that are both yeah. at home right now, and that has not been great. Um, just trying, trying to balance all of that with, with work demanding more and home life demanding more and school life demanding more. It's, it's, it, that has taken a toll on, on me personally. And I think, I think trying to find those moments where I remember that, Oh, Hey, you got to take care of yourself too, sort of things. That's for me, I feel like that's been the hardest part of sort of the the mental game of of this year for me has been how do i how do i continue to do all the things that are required of me and still be a functioning and mostly uh kind human um through all of that and that that's those uncertainties and the uncertainty of when and how we get to the other side of this thing and then how how we rebuild uh, what we what we want and and how we hopefully can ditch some of the stuff that wasn't working I, and I say that on a personal professional and national scale <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any kind of like personal Zen ritual or anything that keeps you centered yeah you know I have a I have a meditation practice I, nice. I wake up every morning uh, you know uh, let the dogs out. And, and then I, I try and meditate at, for at least 20 minutes and try and center myself and try and, you know, find, find that sense of, of inner gratitude for, for what I've got and, and not be so worried about, about either past or future stuff. You know, I try really hard not to sit at my computer all day. And that's difficult, you know, try and try and get some some movement. I feel it's for the past, you know, 10 months or whatever, it's been less working from home and more living at work 
type of uh, scenario. And that's, that's hard. I'm again, trying to find that, trying to find a balance. Uh, so let's, uh, let's talk about, you know, what you did yesterday. Tell us everything you did yesterday. What was your yesterday like? My yesterday. So yesterday was Monday. I uh, woke up, did my did my meditation. Uh, took a walk in the early morning with a dog because uh, it was it was snowing yesterday too, or had just had finished snowing. Then then I I cleared the driveway and and the walk. Uh, had breakfast. I made uh, made oatmeal. I sat down and for about six hours straight was either on the phone or in a Zoom meeting. We'll just skip right over that. There was a, there was a lot of a lot of a lot of meetings yesterday. Um, a lot of catching up. Email. From, from last week, which I'm pretty terrible about. And then I uh, made dinner out with the fam for a little bit, read to the kids, put them to bed, and then, and then had 45 minutes to, to hang out with my wife before we both fell asleep. That was, that was kind of my day. <laughs> uh, what is, what's something you're looking forward to this week, either personally or professionally? Or it can go further out than this week if you have something already in mind. Yeah, well, per- personally, um, I am. I'm. I'm hoping to uh, take the kids uh, sledding uh, this weekend, and so hopefully, hopefully, do that. I'm really looking forward to that, and and spending some time sort of away from screens. And then um, professionally, I'm really looking forward to our um, first hybrid live live stream show coming up. Um, and in a week or so, God, really, uh, the vapors of morphine. So those guys from from morphine, the 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 remaining band members, uh, and they're doing oh, a show nice. at the hall for a socially disadvantaged. So I'm really looking forward to to seeing how that plays out, um, and also really really nice to reconnect with those guys because they're awesome. So check it out. Thank you again for joining us today, Monty. It was wonderful chatting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now, Dan Freund. Dan, known to many as My Friend Dan, is the son of a refugee immigrant. He moved to New Hampshire in 1996 to attend UNH. After struggling with direction early on, Dan found his niche in video production and new ways to creatively express himself through emerging technologies. As Dan says himself, he's a geek for video. Be sure to check out more of Dan's work at myfrienddan.com. Dan's response is a short animation, a visual underline to an audio clip from our conversation with Monty. Images and words energetically appear on the screen, bouncing along with the conversation heard over it. Monty's smiling face, a cow farm, the outlined state of New Hampshire, and a gathering of crows. Added sound effects and music also serve to highlight Monty's words, simple yet fun and engaging enough to make you want to know more. And now, Dan Freund. Welcome, Dan, to We Don't Know What This Is Yet. Thank you. I don't quite know what this is yet either. (laughs) Good. You're in good company. (laughs) Uh, So you had a response uh, to our interview with Monty Bohannon, our conversation with Monty. Yeah. Um, very cool little piece. I, I, I don't even know what, so a, a, a video clip, an animation, what, what's, what's the preferred, uh, nomenclature? <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We yeah. will probably figure that out by the end of this, uh, this conversation. <laughs> it was just a little animation that I, yeah. you know, I, uh, I didn't realize that Monty was from Kentucky. 
Yeah. Uh, and so that's really what stood out to me. I had spent some time out in Kentuckuk, uh, um, Hopkinton, Kentuckuk area uh, over the past year. And so uh, that that kind of stood out to me. Uh, and it's not necessarily something that I do a lot of, but I'm like, well, yeah. you know, I want to experiment a little bit. And so I... <laughs> I did my best to that. try and visualize that uh, that first segment of the interview with Monty. Yeah, so it's a kind of a 15-second audio clip of Monty and I speaking, and Monty uh, saying where he's from, Kentuckuk, and the, the place where the crows meet, and you right. did a cool little... Uh, what what program did you use? I was I, I want to call it a flash animation, but I is it actually uh, it, a flash? It, it, no, it, I you're right. I, that's not even a thing anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> flash isn't it is even a still thing. a thing. It is, thing. Uh, it is okay. uh, used uh, by some still for animation, uh, okay. but I used I used After Effects. Cool, cool. Have you done any kind of animation like that before? This is your very first time, or you're. Have you I done don't any? necessarily fancy myself a designer, but mm-hmm. I can take somebody else's design and animate it. So the the graphics themselves are <laughs> fairly simple. Yeah. Uh, but I I just pulled together what I could to to animate that. Well, it's it's a cool way to kind of highlight the story in a way. Having this conversation, I got to have the conversation with Monty. So it's I'm watching a video of my voice being played back with the little animation popping underneath it, and it helped me understand what I was already listening to more than when I was saying it, more than even when I heard it with Monty. It was a uh, a cool little underline of like the cool. place where the crows meet. Boom! Yeah. And it's like oh wow, that is <laughs> that is just a unique little. Uh, unique little town <laughs> name and 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 feeling for a town too. The place yeah. where it me. What, what's your background as a as a video content creator? Uh, I graduated from college in an age before digital, and I wow. kind of thought, well, you know, I'd never really been creatively expressive when I was a kid. So I was kind of excited about all this new technology coming out as a way of sharing stories and communicating across uh, distances and especially through cultural barriers and language barriers that kind of set me off pursuing whatever I could learn. I like to say I'm a self-taught man. I just went to college to learn what to teach myself. (laughs) Nice. Was there a specific um, innovation or piece of tech or something like that that kind that you kind of remember igniting that flame in you at all? I don't know what it was that that ignited the flame. I just I saw the prospects yeah. of digital media, digital video and imagery emerging, and it was somewhat frustrating because I wanted to get into it. As soon as I learned that it was a thing, but it was prohibitively expensive. Sure. Uh, and so I, I had to wait for it to catch up. And now, of course, I mean, it's it's everywhere. I'm yeah. sitting here this afternoon editing a video on my iPhone of my daughter making guacamole, downloading music <laughs> off of a subscription site that I am a member of and putting together this little piece that is like, you know, I'm doing it on my phone. It's amazing. (laughs) It's, and a lot of that, I mean, there's been so much of that kind of 
do it yourself it happening already but over the past year i feel like we've kind of been forced to do it ourselves even more being uh, content creators being pulled out of their offices studios and having to have their home studios has that changed for you over the past year uh it it hasn't really uh changed for me uh mm-hmm. i've been working for a software company up until last summer primarily remotely you know, yeah. I'd go into the office when when I needed to capture something, but all my editing and post production, all that work was done uh, from home. So it wasn't really a big change for me. There was enough else going on in my life over the last year that uh, really changed. Uh, you know, uh, pandemic was kind of a secondary concern. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I I got divorced over okay. over the last year, uh, and that was you know looking back on it, it was really kind of quick. Mm. Uh, we decided to divorce in March of last year on the fourteenth, so the state wow. locked down on the fifteenth. Yeah. Uh, we decided on the fourteenth that we were going to divorce, and so. Uh, we we lived together for most of the past year, uh, remained living together. But you know that was a um, that was an experience. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you know the one thing that got me through was really uh, keeping in at the front this expectation that there are happy moments every single day, and it became my job to find them. Mm. And it's something that I've carried on with my kids because I do think that having that positive outlook in the face of really difficult circumstances, I mean, nobody wants to go through that. Nobody wants to experience that. But still, finding a way to look for those happy moments is an opportunity to attract more of that. And that's really what I discovered was that by keeping that a genuine sense that I'm going to look for what's good every single day, um, that that seemed to attract more to me. And Mm. I'm really grateful for that. So that's helped looking at the world through that lens over the past year? Yeah. Who wants to go through life miserable? (laughs) I I can name a few people, but we won't get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean... Misery loves company, perhaps, sure. and yeah. and there are certainly those that because they're miserable, they want to make everyone else miserable. But that's not yeah. what I want to cultivate, and that's certainly that. not what I want my kids to see, because yeah. I don't want them to go through life in that way. I want them to see what's good in life. I want them to see what's positive and appreciate what there is, what's right in front of them. Has this changed your creative work at all has this uh do you or is that an outlook that you keep in your creative work too i uh i really struggled through um through the last year i mean i uh i did a quick pivot to a remote based workflow yeah uh, so i started producing this series for uh this company i was working for uh down in cambridge where i'd I basically facilitated something like this, a host and uh, an interviewee talking, edit that down, you know, all over 
Zoom, and I had to adjust to not being able to to produce in front of people, not to be in the same room with people to capture the the pieces that I ordinarily need in order to produce some of the work that I do. Uh, but that that shifted, and I was really distracted by other things. And now I have this really great opportunity to sort of reinvent myself uh, and reestablish what is really important to me. And so part of that is, I suppose, exploring more opportunities to take short animations like what I did here yeah. and kind of codify that in a way so that I can make that more of an offering of what I'm able to uh, to offer clients or employers or or however the future unfolds, really. Um, so you're looking to try something new, and especially with this opportunity, this project, we don't know what this is yet, you were looking to try something new. What, what made animation pop out to you? What, where did that come from? Perhaps looking off into the distance, it... It was really just something new. I get bored easily, and I want to <laughs> keep trying something new. And now, at this stage in my career, I'm realizing that I need to know enough so that I can properly direct others. Because there's a lot of talent out there yeah. right now. There are a lot of really talented uh, illustrators, motion artists videographers, and they may not necessarily have yet found their particular voice, that, that lasting voice that a large-scale organization, an enterprise-scale organization maybe needs in order to integrate that type of video communication into their broader strategy. Mm. But it was an exploration, you know? And, yeah. and I'd like to... I'm excited to see where it goes and how it develops. I don't necessarily think that it's going to be me doing it the you know the the bulk of that work but really stepping back and and orchestrating the messaging behind it more. What were some of the creative challenges or uncertainties in approaching something like this, especially something new that you don't have a lot of experience working in this medium? I, I do not have a design, uh, a real graphic design skill. I look at other people's work and I think, man, that's really great. Look at all those little details that they add in. I don't necessarily create those kind of assets as quickly as someone that works in, say, Illustrator all day, every day. Yeah. So that that was a, a challenge for me because I'm thinking this is how I want it to look and I don't quite know how to get it there. But, you know, I, I, I sat on it for a while and I thought about it for a while and I had a couple of different variations that I was working on. And once I reached that limit, I thought, well, why make it overly sophisticated? Why try to do more than I'm necessarily capable of in this moment? Why not keep it simple and just focus on that soundbite, really? You know, again, it's it experimentation and how you 
take one piece of media and create a derivative from that. And there's a lot of that going on right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, I don't know, ridiculous as it may sound, one of the first things I thought when I saw that animation was like, oh, that's a great Instagram story. Or, you know, like, that's a, you know, just that's a great promotion for our piece, you know, whatever it is. is like, yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. You know, uh, an Instagram story or a reel, something, yeah. you know, that's why I, I did it in that vertical format. Yeah, it feels very modern, very trendy, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, very cool. I have always abhorred falling into trends, <laughs> but I am recognizing that I've missed out along the way so many times <laughs> because I didn't just say, you know, screw it. Let's screw it. Dive in. Yeah. Do you see any new trends emerging this year in content creation, digital content creation? I just think there's... there's such opportunity for what we've seen already. I think that the the real opportunity is for creatives to start doing this at scale uh, and not just necessarily having a, a an appealing visual aesthetic, but really diving deeper into the strategies that drive awareness, drive communication and engagement. And, you know, that can be a, uh, a profit-seeking organization or it can be an organization that just wants to do good in the world. You know, it, it can really run the gamut. Look, the, these are skills that are becoming so incredibly valuable and necessary. For one thing, being able to set up and do an interview, uh, have a decent quality video feed, a decent quality audio stream, and maybe the the uh, skill or the wherewithal to capture from your end is an important skill set. It's something that helps to drive so many high quality podcasts and uh, video shows, you know, you, YouTube shows and the like, and. When you look at people in a business sense, they see that, and with a modest investment, you can have a better quality webcam. You can have a light. I have a light over my head, which uh, helps to glow my hair a little bit. <laughs> it's the little things, the little touches. It's those little things that you don't necessarily think about, but it does have an impact when you start looking at something like this uh, at scale, you know, yeah. when you start looking at it in aggregate, then those simple touches that seem so insignificant in any particular, you know, case, when you look at that in aggregate, then you start to see a level of sophistication start to emerge and you think, wow, that that's appealing. I don't know. The, the, those are the kinds of things that I still kind of ruminate on and, yeah. and try to develop more, especially as I'm looking for, you know, this next chapter in my life. There was, I mean, to me, it felt like the framing this all through the lens of the pandemic, it felt like there was kind of uh, a, a bit of a reset, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic where 
everybody was reset back to the same technology, you know, like everybody was sent home. So all content creators were then back to, you know, you couldn't be in your studios unless you had a super powered home studio. Like there were episodes of television that were all made on literally the same technology that everybody has in their home, (laughs) Saturday Night Live, whatever. You know what, what it did was it, it, it reset people's expectations. Yeah. Uh, so there was a a certain forgiveness, you know, an allowance for lower level technology, which allowed us to really focus on, well, what really matters? Is it the fact that SNL is being produced live in a studio with, you know, crazy camera movements? Or is it the comedy and the the improv along the way? It's interesting to look at it now a year out and to think how we have adjusted in that time. (laughs) I have been distracted along the way. And so my adjustments, I think, are are somewhat um, different from many others. I'm really eager to get on with rebuilding. And now that I have really everything open to me. I I get to be the model that I want my kids to see. And, mm. and that's what matters to me, that they see me make improvements in myself because I, I do carry a lot of residual effects. Uh, and I've been very forgiving of myself along the way, but there's no more room for excuses, really. Uh, and if it's meant to be, it's up to me. I like that saying. Well, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. And that's another episode of our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. It really does help. As always, please tell a friend. That helps, too. You can follow New Hampshire Theatre Project on the various social medias through the links in the episode description, and there you can also find a link to our website where you'll find information on upcoming programming and even donate to support our continuing work. This podcast is brought to you with the support of the Evelyn L. Y. Jones Fund of the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, as well as our audience. If you have a story to share, you can get in touch through the We Don't Know What This Is Yet page on our website at tinyurl.com slash nhtppodcast. There you'll also find more information on all our featured artists and be able to view all their work. This podcast is a production of NHTP and the We Don't Know What This Is Yet project. Our show is produced, engineered, and edited by C.J. Lewis, who also wrote our theme music, and hosted by me, Robin Fowler. And while we may not see you next week, there's one thing you can be certain of. We don't know what this is yet will return. We'll see you soon. <laughs>